All right, guys, we want to open with prayer, and then um, we're going to have Bishop Breedlove come up. And, and you may get to fire some questions at him, but I want him to share a little bit of his testimony. So you know he's just not a guy that comes in and does some sacrament, uh, sacramental duties and then moves on down the road. I want you to know him as a pastor and as a friend, a shepherd. And then uh, maybe he's going to share a little bit about Anglicanism because a lot of us, well, I, I grew up that way, but a lot didn't. So we want to learn. We want to learn today. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you for saving me. Thank you, Lord, that you love us and that you're here with us. Father, we believe that you actually meant it when you said, when two or three are gathered in my name, there I'll be right in the middle, right in the midst of them. So, Lord, we invite you to come. You're the guest of honor. Fill Steve with the Holy Spirit. Let him feel so free, Lord. These, these are your people, the sheep of your pasture. And they're people that you've given him spiritual charge and authority over. So thank you, Jesus, for his leadership. Thank you for Sally. Thank you for their family. Thank you for young Stephen, who is our church planter in Richmond, Courtney and their family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You got one? I got one. Oh, you have one. Okay. Yeah. Oh, lovely. I have been, uh, I've been heavily paid by Lily to make, a, to make an announcement Oh, you didn't get the money to me yet. I'm sorry, I forgot. Okay. <laughs> disciples, making disciples in families, October 24th at 10 a.m., Sunday school class. Week from today. All right. Where is it? Where is it? It's right here. Super easy. All right. Come back. There'll be food again. Good morning, everybody. We've already had a wonderful uh, service at 8.30 and looking forward to the 11 o'clock service. Uh, Quig asked me to launch into a little bit of a testimony about myself. I'm married to Sally. We have five kids and 15 living grandchildren. Uh, we have um, one who lasted about three months before she went to be with Jesus. So we have 16 that have been born. So we have a large family. And it's uh, lots of boys and a few girls. <laughs> Just sink it in like that, okay? Um, I uh, have been following Jesus. I say that I've been following Jesus since I was 13 years old for 58 years, but I actually think in many ways Jesus has been following me <laughs> more than I've been following him, and he's been, you know, pushing and holding me along the way. I had an experience uh, a few couple of weeks ago that just has really solidified or symbolized um, the faithfulness of God to me. I was in Glen Erie, which is the headquarters for the Navigators ministry in Colorado Springs. And how many of you have ever been to Glen Erie? Just a few of you, okay? If you ever get a chance to go to Colorado Springs, go to the Garden of the Gods. You've heard of that. And then look around the corner from the Garden of the Gods. And the extension of the Garden of the Gods is a place called Glen Erie, where they have this castle that was transported stone by stone by stone from Scotland and built into the mountains there. It's just a spectacular valley. But eventually it came into the uh, possession of the Navigators Ministry. Anyway, so I was there for a conference a couple of weeks ago with some bishops in the Anglican Church, um, and I was just reflecting on the fact that about that eighth or ninth time I'd been to Glen Erie, and I started to I just suddenly realized, like, oh, the first time I came here, I was 15 years old, and I came to a conference there for high schoolers, and I learned a song that I still sing in my mind called Higher Than the Hills, Deeper Than the Sea. Broader than the skies above is my Redeemer's love for me. 
to the cross of shame, Jesus freely came, bearing all my sin and sorrow, wondrous love. So to sing that to myself when I, when I need to be reminded, 15 years old. And so I'm sitting there kind of soaking in this, and I go into for breakfast, and this, these people stop me, and they go, Steve Breedlove? And I say, yeah. And they go, we're so-and-so and so-and-so. We were in your church when you were a pastor in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. That was when I was 34 years old, okay? And they reminded me of some things and told me about this guy named Joel Brown who had come to faith in Jesus Christ and how they were close friends with him, and we just enjoyed that. That was just amazing. The next afternoon, I'm sitting in, and I'm walking through Glen Erie, and this woman comes up, and she goes, Steve, and she stops me, and it's Julie Suchlin, and I was a missionary for four years, and she was on our mission team, and she's now working there. So that was when I was in my 50s, so 15, 34, 53. Last morning, I'm there, sitting there, having breakfast, and a guy comes up to me who looks like Jesus, seriously, <laughs> and, um, and he says, Bishop Steve, and I go, I, I know I know you, and he goes, it's Joel, I mean, it's Josiah, and I'm going, what? Josiah, and because he'd grown his hair out. He used to have short hair, and he was down to his shoulders by now. It was his COVID gift. But anyway, um, and the crazy thing about him, he's in our church in Beckley, West Virginia, and that was on a Friday, and a week from them, I'd already had an appointment set up for, to meet him for lunch in Beckley. So my point being is, is that God gave me markers from when I was 15, 34, 52, and 71. And all of that just simply testifies to the fact that the Lord is faithful and good. Amen? So sometime, if you ever have a chance, ask the Lord to do something like that for you, where you can just remember the places where he is, just, just to remind you of those, those, those faithful moments when you can be reflecting on the life that you've been given in Christ. I was... Uh, born in a family that was not Christian. They became Christians. My parents became Christians when I was 11 years old. I became Christian a couple, couple of years later. It was a big change in my family, huge difference in the way things happened around my home. Uh, and, um, but I really didn't take off spiritually till I went to Washington and Lee University uh, when I went to college. I was from Texas, went to school in Virginia. And there I became part of the Jesus movement in the late 60s. Um, and there was just this huge movement that the Lord blessed Washington Lee with um, and was rooted there in the prayer and the tears of a man who prayed and t- wept over the campus for three years before suddenly there was an explosion and a revival. And um, by the time he was a junior, there were three other guys praying with him and weeping with him. And the next year when I was a freshman, that went from one to four, and one year later, it was 80 people who were in Bible study at Washington Lee. Uh, it was when it was all guys. There was no campus ministry. This was not part of anything. It was just the Lord moving. And uh, we started a, a program there that uh, was really a great program, gathering students together to um, do sort of a young life. Basically, it was a young life deal. You know, we were all young life people, and it, we did a young life club sort of thing. But we at WNL, because it was an all-guys school, we still were going to school six days a week wearing coat and ties. Uh, we had the foresight and the wisdom to invite girls from Hollins, Mary Baldwin, Randolph-Macon, and uh, you know, to, to join us, you know what I mean, in Sweetbriar. And so we had a, uh, that meant that the guys from VMI would sneak out over the fence and come to join us as well, you know, because they, uh, and there was this attractional thing called uh, Jesus. Um, and uh, the... Uh, and uh, 
my uh, sophomore year, there was a young lady there who caught my eye, and uh, she went to Hollins and named Sally. And uh, we began a friendship that uh, was an interesting journey. Uh, I'm not going to tell that journey. My son wrote a story about our courtship when he was in French class at, at the University of North Carolina, and he says, Dad, let's just put it this way. You don't come off looking very good. So anyway, <laughs> but um, nevertheless, uh, my wife-to-be uh, endured through that, ups and downs, and we um, got engaged and got married right after I gradu- uh, graduated, we after we graduated from college. Um, went to seminary, and then I was a non-denominational pastor for 29 years. And the reason I say that is because, you know, there was a lot of great things that happened then. Witness what I just said about Glen Airy. One of the people that I ran into was when I was a pastor in Iowa during that time. We spent most of our, our pastoral life in that world in Western Canada. So just great experiences, great ministries. But the last decade of my life as a non-denominational pastor, I um, began to minister to a lot of pastors. I don't, it just sort of happened that way. Um, and I ministered in a number of different countries. I did a lot of conference work, and we did repeat conference work. We would go back, went 12 times to Columbia, this nation of Columbia. I went, you know four or five times to the same groups of people in Western Canada and in Central Canada, went to, uh, you know, in Ecuador, went to Brazil, you know, just different places like that, ministering to pastors, Romania, a total of 15 times ministering. And what happened, we were all in non-denominational world, a Baptistic world, Pentecostal world. And um, I began to, to hear something and something came into focus that these pastors from every, you know, continent, literally, uh, except Australia, every continent, uh, all sorts of traditions, but non-denominational or, you know, independent churches would say the same thing. I am a pastor, but I do not have a pastor. (laughs) I don't trust people because the world is competitive. And number three, it's been years and years and years since I've experienced anything from God that I wasn't in charge of. That I, in other words, I'm managing it all. And the pressure is enormous because not only do I have to produce the experience for other people, I have to, in a sense, do it out of creativity. And, you know, there was this concept that everything had to be new and fresh and different every week and all this kind of stuff or whatever, for me as a non-denominational pastor, whatever the, 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 the way of success for the year that came out of Willow Creek or Saddleback or, you know, Mars Hill or wherever it was, you know, whatever the latest thing was, then you had to figure out how to do that. And I, I will be honest, by the time I was, um, I've been around for 29 years in 2001, I hit the wall. It was not, I don't think, really burnout because I continued to ministry on the other side of it, but I just couldn't do this anymore because it was lonely, it was competitive, and I had nobody to turn to. I can't tell you how many times I wish in my efforts to pastor a church and lead a big staff and, you know, work with uh, lay leaders, I wish somebody had come in and knocked me in the head and told me I was an idiot. And I mean that. I wish somebody had told me what to do. Somebody who was not, you know, in it for themselves, that this was not about competition for who was running the church, but somebody who could speak to all of us and say, this is what's true and right. Get everybody lined up over here. And I longed for that. I longed to have a pastor. I longed to, to have a, a, a world in which there were things that were more mysterious and more amazing and more inexplicable than what I was 
thinking about. I wanted to be able to worship, not just to lead. I wanted to be able to rest, not just work, okay? So in that process, I, I, I um, did what a lot of people do when they get to burn out, they become a consultant. And, um, <laughs> and I did, went full-time into pastoring pastors. And, and all that did was just heighten the questions for me. Because in the meantime, uh, for the first time in my adult life, I had begun to look for a church. We were living in Raleigh, North Carolina at that time. And, um, and we made our way to this little Anglican church that was getting started. And uh, I was not all that keen about it. It was kind of like, hey, this is a little bit weird. And there's some things I didn't like about it too much. It seemed different and strange. But my wife and my kids that were still at home said, this is where we're going. And since you're gone half the time, we get all the votes, okay? <laughs> so you just have to, you know, come on, you know. And uh, sometimes I would and sometimes I wouldn't, to be honest with you. But after a while, I, I began to get into the rhythm of it and r- rhythm of it. And, th- and it began to dawn on me that this tradition called Anglicanism was a gift that really addressed all those three things that I just described. Pastors have pastors. Somebody who's outside the church who can speak to everybody within the church from the point of view of disinterest because it's not their, they're not on the line here. They can speak into it. There was a collegiality that I'd never experienced in my life. I mean, a generosity of people who were in this movement together who said, can we do, what can we do to help you? What can we do to, to, to resource you? What can we do to support you? How can we celebrate what God is doing? And then there was this methodology of worship in which there was an ability to come into the presence of God just as a worshiper. I'm the pastor, but I'm a worshiper. And, and I'm carried along. And I entered into this thing called Anglicanism and was reordained in 2005. And, and, and I will kind of bottom line it in this sense. I, I mean, I have never, ever imagined. And I'm, I, I, I don't have another... Kicker the you know kicker the can on this thing. This is it for me. But I've never imagined living a life in terms of ministry and friendship and relationship and the work of God, which is so healthy. Which is so healthy. Doesn't mean that we don't have problems. The church tends to have human beings in it, and it, therefore we do continue to have problems and issues, and you work your way through things. But there is a fundamental health and a vibrancy and a generosity and a, and, a, and a care and a giving that has just been incredible. So when I was elected a bishop, um, it felt like that the Lord had called me to live the life that I had wanted somebody to be living for me all my life. And it was really, what a privilege, you know, what an honor to be able to do so. Uh, I, that's my testimony um, I have had plenty of, I mean, I, following Jesus for 58 years, my internal life is not easy. I have my own doubts. I have my own struggles. I have my own temptations. I've had many, many, many senses of threat or accusation or internal sense of condemnation. I, I, I'm just a guy, you know what I mean? But the Lord has carried me through it all. There's a passage in Zechariah 3, which I go back to again and again and again, and it's one of my favorite passages. And Joshua, this guy who's the high priest, is standing before the throne of God, and he's got the angel of the Lord, that's Jesus, standing with him, and then Satan on the other side. And Satan's accusing him and mocking him and uh, saying how dirty he is. 
And the angel of the Lord, i.e. Jesus, rebukes Satan and says, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? I, I pulled this guy out of the fire. Now, when you, put, when you pull something out of the fire, what happens to your hand? You get burned. Did Jesus get burned for us? Yeah. So the Lord rebuke you, the angel of the Lord says. Be quiet. Be gone. And then he turns to the other ministering angels and he says, take off the dirty clothes and put on festival garments and put a turban on his head. Welcome to the party. Welcome to the party. So that's my testimony. I've been welcome to the party. I've been plucked out of the fire. I've been, Satan gets, keeps getting rebuked. And thankfully, I've been around long enough that Satan's getting bored with me a little bit. But anyway, I just say that tongue in cheek. <laughs> Steve. Hi. Hi. So we could talk about Anglican things, and they may have some questions, or we could do the riskier thing and have you give us a report card like the churches in the book of Revelation. Hmm. You could say what you see is good. What, what, uh, where do you see health? But you want to talk about Anglicanism. Uh, that's one in one. You, you and I can talk about whatever else we want to. Um, I'd, I would, I, I'd love questions. I would, I would really love questions if you have any. That's really fun for me. Encouraging. Yes. Hi, Lily. Hey, Steve. Um, one of the things I like about this church and new members class is this great little booklet called Our Anglican Heritage. And it talks a bit about um, the way this Anglican church has been a covering for other denominations or other churches um, and has a vision for, um, at least historically, for more unity in the church. Do you have a dream about that? So Lily's question is about this book, Our Anglican Heritage, and the idea that Anglicanism has uh, really tried to be a mediating and uniting force among churches. And it is. Many times Anglicanism is called the via media, the, the middle way, and it really stands in between, you know, like uh, reformed and charismatic and, and Catholic and sacramental and tries to pull it all together. And in fact, I, I do think that that is part of the tradition that we've been given. Um, in terms of the question that Lily has specifically is, do I have a vision for that? Uh, I am on the Anglican Unity Task Force, and I do have a passion for the unity of the church. And it's something that I think about a lot. I talk, have the opportunity um, in my ministry and relationships with other bishops to talk a lot about maintaining unity. Uh, my task in the Anglican Unity Task Force is kind of more the strategic side of it. How can we positively build unity? And then we got another wing of our work that's about repairing disunity. But anyway, so we, yeah, it, there, is a, there is a passion that I have for that. And I do think, um, let me just back it up and, and just say one of the things that I, 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 I'm going to give a conviction, and I actually believe this is true. I don't think this is just press. Uh, I believe the Anglican church, the reason that it has value is not because it's Anglican, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, I mean, there's lots of, there's lots of legitimate ways to follow Christ. But do, I do think that the value of the Anglican way, there's a couple that are important. First of all, it is a, a rebirth of an expression of Christianity that was there at the very beginning. So if you look at the early history of the church, there was, a, there was centers of, of, of life. And one of the centers was Constantinople in the eastern part. And there was the western part, you know, Rome and, and, um, and North Africa. But there was also a center which was less... Uh, visibly organized, but nevertheless powerfully alive in the British Isles called Celtic Christianity. And Celtic Christianity, you know, names like St. Patrick, 
you know. You name, huh? Old St. Patrick, yeah, and you got guys like Aidan and, you know, Cuthbert and people like that. And if you begin to dig into it, what you see is that they did not build centralized institutions. Their passion was gospel penetration, taking the gospel into the world and learning to speak the language through the culture of the people so that the gospel became understandable to everyday people. And so whereas uh, the East gave us gifts, and the West gave us gifts, the Celtic faith, the Celtic expression also had its own gift. And they all shared a common way of worship. Little variations, but fundamentally, it was the same. And you get the sense that this is really the way the apostles taught the church to worship. It just got expressed in different ways. Well, if that's true, then what we have is we have an expression of the universal little c Catholic church the United Church, as is expressed in Celtic Christianity, which emphasizes mission and accessibility. So that goes underground. If you look at history, it kind of goes underground in the British Isles because of some church wars, okay? I know you wouldn't imagine that. But anyway, um, some church wars resurfaces in the Reformation. And Thomas Cranmer's impulse was exactly the same as that Celtic Christianity. He wanted to translate the Bible into English, and he wanted to translate the prayer book into English, and he wanted every family in England to have a prayer book and a Bible at home so that you do worship at home. You participate in worship. You don't watch worship happening in another language. You know it in your language. The songs are written in the songs and the, ven the vernacular of your world. And so he turned this into a passionately mission-centric or mission-centered movement. Same stuff way back when, same shared, you know, forms of worship, but now accessible. And if you look at the history of the Anglican church, it became the most mission-driven church in the Reformation. It went all over the world, okay? So whereas I don't know, Lily, whether or not I have a vision for you, ecumenical unity that goes bigger than I'm really hoping and concerned about unity in our diocese and unity in the, in, in the province that we're in and unity in the Anglican world. But what I do know is that I do think we've been given a gift and a particular calling to resurrect and to live within what I believe God gave to the original church. He gave through the Celtic church a passion for gospel penetration. And I believe that that's really the thing that, that, that we are meant to be as Anglicans. Steve, what percentage of the diocesan budget goes to church planning and real mission, gospel? So the Diocese of Christ, our hope, is thanks, because we try to translate what I just said into action. And we have this, we have a legacy that we've been given from our birth that 50% of all the money that comes into the diocese goes back out in mission and church planning. And so we've been able to continue to do that even uh, all these years, and it's pretty exciting. Right now, our diocesan budget, which is 10% of the undesignated offerings of every church in our diocese. Our diocese budget runs about $1.2, $1.3 million a year. But we take half of that and we put it back out in terms of mission. So right now we're running about $650,000 to $680,000 a year back out in mission. So the, then in addition to that, we have, you know, a staff, um, but we also take 10% of what comes in and send it back to Rwanda and the ACNA. 
So now we have 40%. And of our 40% that we live on, about two-thirds or three-quarters of our staff is meant to support and fuel mission in the field. So it boils down to the fact that the office of the diocese is in our basement, okay? And we have about three or four people who do administration and, or, and operations, and everything else is meant to put money and mission out. So it's half of the real dollars um, and about two-thirds of the energy of the, of the diocese goes into supporting that. I'm, I'll, I've got, my successor's been elected, Alan Hawkins. I've got about three more years before I pass the baton. It'll be 12 years that I've been able to be bishop. And by the grace of God, the exciting thing for me is by that time, about, the diocese will have given about $8 million for mission uh, and church planning during that time. We were just in, um, about three weeks ago, we were in a, all-day meeting in uh, Charleston, West Virginia, where we de developed a, a prayer strategy and a plan strategy and a, uh, you know, an action, action plan for planning three or four new churches in West Virginia in the next two to three years. It's just, it's a, it's a pretty exciting ride we're on right now. That's a question. Yes. How many active church plants are going on within the diocese right the diocese right now has 37 churches. There are three that came from the Episcopal Church originally. Every one of the others, all 34 others, are church plants in some level of maturity. And we have about, so 34 church plants and missions right now actively in the diocese. We, uh, uh, several of those are congr have reached congregational status. I mean, mo many of them have. But we have, right now we have church plants emerging in Moore County, North Carolina, which is sort of near Pinehurst, Hickory, North Carolina, three or four new ones in West Virginia. We have another church plant that is emerging in, uh, in, in New York State. So we've got about that, uh, you know, and then another one in Port, uh, New Albany, Indiana. What's the health of the one in Richmond that your son, how, how, yeah, I was just there last week, and um, they are well-discipled. Their worship might be a click more liturgical than ours, but I have to tell you, honestly, I've never heard singing and people entering into worship like that. Annette, when we walked out, she's like, wow. The church is incredibly healthy, and they're growing. Um, even as they had to start, you know, right before COVID. So COVID was tough, but I think now they have about 100 people. They're already getting ready to send their first missionary out to Kazakhstan. Where they? they meet in a place called Cambrian Baptist Church. One of the things you can pray about is that building, the church, Cambrian Baptist is folded, and they're now selling the church. The uh, Incarnation has been meeting there for a couple of years and had been very faithful and really had a great relationship with the pastor, but the pastor left. And so he, and the church now has decided to sell its property, and they've got three options. Uh, one of them is to sell it to Incarnation, and, but there are other two options. And, and I'd really appreciate your prayers because they are well-established there. It works well for them. It would be terrific if, that, if the church ended up in, in Incarnation's uh, possession. That would be something to pray about. Yes, buddy. Andy. Uh, how is the ACNA positioning itself to deal with the onslaught of secularism Christian bias in the culture. So the question, how is the ACNA positioning itself? And I don't, I, I think the ACNA, uh, I mean, as a province, it, um, of course, its positions are clear. 
okay? It's, it, it takes clear positions, and it, and it kicks out from time to time. The bishops will get together and make a statement that, that spe speaks specifically to issues of the culture and confirms what we already believe. There's, you know, it, it just makes our stand clear. But the ACNA's principle of action is to primarily let the diocese and the local churches, you know, figure out how to fight that battle. Uh, I guess the tone uh, of it would be, if I could, I think the overall tone is how do we address the issues of culture with um, clarity, confidence, but also with love and respectfulness. In other words, so what I mean by that is that it doesn't tend to be a culture as an ACNA where the way we, it, there's two things we probably don't do, which is to withdraw and build a wall, okay? Or to spend our time uh, in, in what you might call culture wars, you know? So the tone would be more like, how do we engage? How do we, how, okay, you got this issue. You got this thing that's going on. How do we, what does the gospel say to you? And how do we help you see the good news? You, you hear what we're saying is actually bad news, but it's good news. And may, our, our prayer and our bent is to help you understand why the gospel is good news and how it's good news for you. And so that would be the tone uh, that doesn't, that I wouldn't, don't take that too far because there are certain times when you have to, you know, you take certain stands, you know, we are uh, invited in our culture to take, uh, I mean, we're citizens, you know, we, we live in, we live in communities and we have to take stands in some way or another. But the tone, I would say, would be more about the fact that we are here to um, win people to, for Christ and to seek to be agents that bring conviction and clarity to the battles that are going on in humanity, not to be people who are here primarily to protect ourselves. So you mentioned Toda. There are resources that ACNA is providing to the local churches? No. That there are resources the diocese is providing. So right, right now, and I mentioned this to the Vestry yes, a couple of days ago, and I, would, I do want to take the opportunity to mention this. We as a diocese are quite serious about equipping our leaders, lay and clergy, to be able to live confidently and clearly in the culture, in the, in the, in the questions the culture is coming up with. So, for instance, what we try to do every year is we introduce a topic which we take a, a very hard biblical run at a particular issue that has, that's really popping up in culture, okay? So what does the Bible say about this and how do we train people to live and think biblically? This year, the particular conversation that we're introducing, which is it's at, the, at our, we introduce it every year at our convocation, which is first weekend in November, and you, you can sign on, you can join. It's, you can watch it by Zoom, you can come to the convocation in Greensboro this year. And our conversation this year is what is, it, what is the, it's biblical humanity, biblical identity. What does it mean to be a human being from God's perspective? Because we look at all these things that are happening in our culture and all the conflicts around gender or race or, you know, the kinds of things, you know, sanctity of life. Those are all questions that really root themselves back into what does it mean to be a human created in the image of God? What does it mean to be a human who's fallen? What does it mean to be a human who's been redeemed? Okay. So how does our humanity as creatures created in the image of God by a good creator who is also our redeemer, how, does that, how do we think about ourselves now? Who gives us our identity? Who gives us our identity? Do we name it for ourselves, or is it given to us? Do we declare who we are? 
So we're going to establish a very strong conversation about a biblical, just planting our feet solidly on what the Bible says means to be a human being. Then we're going to unpack it for the next year with four other seminars, four other afternoon events. One of them, biblical humanity and sexuality. Biblical humanity and race. Biblical humanity and dementia disability. Biblical humanity and mortality. And then we're going to come back next November 2022 and talk about biblical humanity and work because so many people find their identity in their work. So we're just trying to change the conversation and give people the understanding of what's the deeper question here. And I, I mean, for me personally, I think that, I mean, I feel pretty passionately about the fact, I think it's such an important part of our life and perspective is just to ask the question, who names me? Who tells me who I am? And if we believe that we tell ourselves who we are, then, then everything's up for grabs. But what does that do? And how does that play its way out in your life? How do you live over time? Uh, one of our dear friends, um, family, just went through this about four or five years ago, just in the most tragic sense of the word, uh, in terms of uh, gender transition. Uh, and the person who transitioned, um, it's all come crashing down. You know what I mean? It's all come crashing down. And um, she is no longer able to function because she has completely lost everything she was hoping for. And she, you know, and, and, you know, she's changed her name three times now. You know what I mean? And she, 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 she what's she asking? She's asking, who am I? Yeah. Yeah. And let me just tell you, God tells you who you are. You know? So that's what we're trying to do. That's how we try to address it. Yes. Yes. Are these discussions appropriate for people? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Are they appropriate for teenagers? Um, in terms of teenagers, we're trying. We're developing some other resources. I mean, excuse me. You'd have to filter that as a parent, okay? Uh, they're not. You know, they're not graphic or anything like that. They're just straight scripture and how you deal with this. It just depends on the maturity of a child. But one of the things we are doing with our youth ministries in our diocese is we're developing some resources for youth ministries and parents around the issue of gender questioning. So we're developing a, uh, a support group for youth pastors and youth ministers, youth leaders who can talk it through and know what, and, and we're developing significant resources to resource our youth leaders. We're also creating, uh, and we're not there yet, so it's not online, but it should be online within the next couple or three months, a, a hotline for parents. Because what happens when somebody, when, I mean, what happens when your child suddenly tells you, I don't know who I am anymore, you know? And right now it's just so, it's so rampant, it's epidemic in our culture. And parents are just, the bottom falls out, you know what I mean? And where do you go to and how do you get answers for this? So we're trying to develop resources for parents, youth leaders, youth ministers, and we're pretty aggressively uh, working on that right now. Um, will any of these uh, discussions be videotaped? Yeah, they're all, so, the, yeah, so, okay, excuse me, I didn't, maybe I didn't miss your question here, but yes, all the things that we do, like, for instance, at our convocation and all the things we do to play this out over the next year are all going to be recorded and all going to be available on our, we have a lot of resources on our diocesan website, and they'll be up, and the, you know, so you can look at it, video, and, you know, and then figure out how to watch. I think this stuff on human identity and all the ways it plays out would be fantastic small group conversations 
video, watch them, on, watch them as a small group, unpack that, I think it'd be terrific. Tell yes. Um, each time when I read through the Old Testament, I, I, I see over and over good kings that raise bad sons. And you know, the, the professed ideology just isn't really internalized on the, on the home front. And so I'm curious, as a man of leadership, who's been in leadership for so long, um, how is it that you ensure that there is internalization for your family and even for your neighbor that you're close with? Can you restate that? Yeah, you know, the, que the question is, you know, uh, reading through the Old Testament, you see so many good, you know, good kings who produce bad sons. And how do, you, how do you, you know, do your best to ensure that that doesn't happen in your world, that that isn't your story? Man, Tom, that's a really hard question. <laughs> You know what I mean? It really is. Um, but I think that um, what we've realized, and what I, I, mean, I, let me just, what I realized is, is that, um, and what I think many people have to come to grips with, is, is that um, bringing up your kids in an atmosphere that you, you know, reflects the way that God has filled your life with joy and beauty isn't enough. You got to actually teach your kids. You know, you got to, and we, we're, we realize that you got to teach your kids in our world, you got to start preschool. Preschool. Because right now there are preschool books that are teaching alternative understandings of human identity. Uh, where I live in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, the, there are gender neutral bathrooms in grade one. Okay? And so uh, we, it, it's just aggressive. It's very, very aggressive. So parents have to be even more aggressive. But I believe what I would suggest, there's a couple of things. That would, so that you teach, that you instruct is really crucial. Discipleship has to become family life. Family life has to become discipleship. And let me say one other thing. Education is discipleship. How? You know, so whatever's going on in education is discipling your kids. So you've got to be able to stand there and figure out what to say back or how to deal with that issue. But nevertheless, I think the thing that I wish, I, th I wish I'd taught my kids better. I thought that they would ab absorb it. You know, we would do, you know, family devotions and that'd be enough. I don't think I really discipled my kids very well. Wish I'd done a better job. But the other thing, too, that I would say for me personally, and this is more my personality or temperament type or what Sally and I have had to learn and repent of, is I think that we were, in many ways, too fearful. We were too tense about it. And I think what our kids needed to know is if we actually believe that God is good and powerful, then we, they need to see it in our, our sense of faith, our faith, our rest, our, our confidence, not terror, you know? And so I think that confidence and faith, confidence in the Lord, why are you kids going to be drawn to something where you're scared the crap out of you because you don't know whether or not it's going to work? You know what I mean? Not, that's, not, that's not the message you want to communicate, right? So I would add to the intentionality of it and the specificity of it and the depth of the education and discipling of your kids is your own faith, your own rest, your own joy. Yeah, the joy of the Lord is your strength, okay? All right, maybe a couple more. Yes. yes. Well, I want to first thank you for coming here and taking the time to yeah. be with us today. My question might be a little bit more on the personal side, so I may apologize in advance. Um, 
I was wondering if your interpretation of love, Jesus' love, unconditional love, has changed throughout the years of your service. And also, what are one or two ways you've expressed love that God has given you to others that most people may not know about? Well, okay. Has my, has my definition of unconditional love changed? Never been asked that question. I think. Um, I think I, I think it's changed in the sense I think it's become more confident. I, I think I've become more confident in the unconditional love of Christ. More more sense that I, it really is a fact that it really is true. It's not hinged on um, on my performance or those kinds of things. I don't think I, I think it's it's in spite of you know what I mean. I probably would have had that theology as, as a young follower of Jesus, but I think. It's become a little, I think I'm a little bit, I rest in his love more. I, I'm, um, and in terms of how I relate to other people, I think I can look them in the eye and say, hey, I don't care whether you think that what God tells you sounds like prison. It's love. It's love. I promise you it's love. You know, it's, it's, it, 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 is, it is the way, the truth, and the life. I think I become more confident, more able to look somebody in the eye and, who disagrees with me and just smile. Just go, you know what? It's okay. I, you don't have to believe me, but I promise you, this is love. Um, in terms of how I love other people, um, I think, yeah, I find myself checking my own, being checked in my own spirit when I look at people and just automatically come up with a critical judgmental, you know, story. And just to realize everybody around me is working through their pain, you know? And so I think that my compassion has grown, my sympathy has grown, and my ability to be comfortable with somebody who's super, super different than me in their affect and presentation. And, um, and honestly, just to be able to go, you know, I've, here's who I am, and this is what, what, how, who I know, and what, but... I know you may not be there, but it's okay. I'm, I, you're a human. And I do think my sense of the dignity and the worth of a human, even if they, even if they never come to faith, has probably increased. I think I used to be a lot more, um, a lot more oppositional, you know, in those conversations. Does that help? Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. Um, it's evident by the early service and just uh, how you speak that the word of God is is alive. Amen. And just goes in your heart, and uh, it's not just a memory thing for you, but it just kind of comes out. I'm interested uh, in what your favorite miracle of Jesus in the gospel. <laughs> oh, that's an easy one. Matthew chapter seven. Jesus comes off the Sermon on the Mount, comes down from the mountain. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says people were just astonished because he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. So here's a guy, and he's just been recognized as having authority, which is authority is like this big, you know, authority. And the next scene, he walks into Capernaum, and a leper falls at his feet. And I, get, I, mean, I literally have chills right now when I think about this miracle, because a I mean, first of all, the leper just violated all the principles because what's the leper supposed to be doing, right? Unclean, running away, and all that kind of stuff. And he doesn't. He's bold enough. He comes to Jesus, and he falls at his feet. 
So he's already, he's already broken through, and Jesus is sitting there, and he, he, and, he, and he goes, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Mark's account, I'm quoting it out of Matthew, but on Mark's account, he says, and moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. Now, at that point in time, what happened to Jesus? Ritually, what happened? He's unclean, okay? So he broke through and blew that off in order to take the uncleanness of the leper onto himself and return to the leper wholeness. That man had not, how long had that, how long had it been since he held his daughter in his lap? How long had it been since he hugged, hugged his wife? How long had he been since a, since a friend put his arm around him? So he restored him to life, to community, to family, to wholeness. And Jesus had the power to take the uncleanness and not become unclean himself. Then he turns right around and says, now go to the priest and tell him. Why? He was immediately discipling him because that's what the Bible told him to do. So he's teaching him to apply the Bible, right? So it moves from miracle into discipleship in a moment. I love that miracle. Goes on. Goes on to Capernaum. And there's a guy, this soldier comes up to him. Centurion, he goes, I got, a, I got a servant at home that's sick. And Jesus says, I'll come. And he says, you don't need to come. Just say the word and he'll be healed. And the centurion says, here, because I too am a man under authority. Therefore, I have soldiers and I tell them what to do. So he recognized in the man Jesus, because I don't think he knew the incarnation at all. He recognized in the man Jesus that Jesus had power, therefore Jesus was under authority. And on the human level, the reason Jesus had authority is because he was under authority. And that all wraps up together to me in the most amazing scene. I love Matthew chapter 8. Can I jump in on authority for a second, Steve? So we're seeing all these church pastors and leaders fall. Um, Mark Driscoll, um, Perry Noble, Ravi Zacharias, uh, Ravi Zacharias, McDonald at Harvest Bible Church, fill in the blank. So, what do we have to protect us from falling in the same ditches? And what happens when somebody goes off, either theologically or, you know, with their morals? What are the protections for deacons, priests, bishops, archbishops, etc.? Who's watching the people who are watching? Who are watching? Who are watching? Well, you try to build your system as watertight as you possibly can to make sure that the person who's in authority um, is given the responsibility and compelled to do something to intervene in behalf of somebody who's going off the rails. So in our diocese, our canons, our, our laws, our constitution and laws require our diocese and council to be aware of any clergy in our diocese who's in crisis. And they are, require me as the bishop to talk to the diocese and council in order to find out what do we do appropriately to intervene by discipline and correction or rescue. And if I fail, then the diocesan council can bring me up on charges. So it's a double jeopardy thing. In other words, or you know, double reinforcement. So I have a responsibility to be aware of things and to move and intervene uh, on behalf of the health of others. Um, and the diocesan council has the right to call me to account if I fail to. 
And in fact, then the College of Bishops, and it's happened, could remove me if I refused to do my job. Have you seen any bishops removed while you've been a bishop? Uh, three. Three. What if the archbishop, who's kind of the head bishop, overseeing bishop, what if he fails? There's a principle, a canon within the ACNA di- uh, uh, canons, which give the right and authority and responsibility to the five oldest bishops, oldest serving bishops in the, in the province to police the archbishop's personal life. Maybe one more question, then we have to go to the next service. Yeah, hi. Hey, just a quick one. You were talking about all the seminars that are upcoming and everything. Do you have the website that you can provide? Yeah, it's, uh, our diocesan website is adalphadeltahope.org. Okay. Thank you. As in Anglican diocese, adhope.org. All right, guys. It's been fun. All right. Give them a round of applause. Hey. Thank you, Steve.